0: Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a new program for Yale. You listen to The Interchange because you want the deepest insights on the energy transition, but how do you put them into practice? Well, the Yale program in financing and deploying clean energy is focused on exactly that. Through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in clean energy policy, finance, and technology, and helping them understand how to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide faster. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit the link in the show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. Green Tech Media Podcast.
1: We actually do need to be looking at this as a major macroeconomic force that's affecting every region and every sector. And talking about it the way we talk about inflation, the way that we talk about globalization, um, that's really where we are at this point with climate change, both the impacts and the, you know, the future emissions.
2: In the same way that alternative energy is now just energy, will climate finance just become finance? I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Two years ago, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, one of the largest institutional asset managers in the world, wrote a public letter to CEOs that shook the financial world by its incredible focus on climate change. This year, just a couple of weeks ago, he did it again. It's an annual letter that he writes to CEOs. This time, it received, I think, a little less attention, understandably, because he had done it the year before and the year before that. But I think this year's letter is an even bigger deal. A couple of choice quotes, as more and more investors choose to tilt their investments towards sustainability focused companies, the tectonic shift that we are seeing will accelerate further. And because this will have such a dramatic impact on how capital is allocated, every management team and board will need to consider how this will affect their company's stock. But companies that are not quickly preparing themselves will see their businesses and their valuations suffer as these same stakeholders lose confidence that those companies can adapt their business models to the dramatic changes that are coming he goes on to say i have great optimism about the future of capitalism and the future health of the economy not in spite of the energy transition but because of it so if you believe all of this there's an enormous task and an enormous opportunity ahead to infuse climate, the understanding thereof and the mitigation thereof, into the financial ecosystem. But how is this going to play out exactly? We're just in the very first innings today. And I was lucky enough to have the exact right person to run through this with. Kate Gordon is currently the director of the Office of Planning and Research in Governor Newsom's office, the governor of California. She's also a senior advisor to the governor on climate. And Kate has had a very long track record of understanding how to explain, quantify, and mitigate climate risk. She was one of the founders of the Risky Business Project, which was one of the first ambitious projects to try to calculate climate risk down to the individual physical asset level and then infuse it into the financial system. And as you'll hear, she's just working on these issues from a variety of different lenses every single day. If you've heard Kate's previous episode on this podcast, you'll also know that Kate and I grew up together. And as she likes to tell everyone, she apparently babysat me when we were kids, though I To be honest, remember nothing of the sort. With no further ado, my conversation with Kate Gordon. Okay, so the last time that you were on this podcast, you blew up my spot and told the whole world that you used to babysit me in Madison, Wisconsin long ago. Okay, so I had to verify this because I don't remember you actually babysitting me ever. I asked my mother uh, this weekend whether you actually babysat me. She was not certain that it was true either. She she said that it sounds like the kind of thing that would have happened, but had no specific recollection. I just want to get that on the record. So
1: I would just say it wasn't just me. It was me and your next-door neighbor, Jennifer, and my sister, Emily, and all of us together used to babysit you. So I think it was more like, uh, you guys need to hang out with Shale while we're off doing whatever thing. Um, and so I, I probably wasn't specifically like... She paid me for X amount of time. I don't know that your mother ever paid any of us anyway to babysit you. I think it was more like a, you must hang out with Shale now.
2: Yeah, it was more of volunteer work. Yeah. It was like a, it takes a village to babysit Shale kind of a thing. I get it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I also do want to point out to the world. Now it's my turn to blow up your spot. Something about you that I think is <laughs> possibly unique in a literal sense, which is that you are a current owner and user of a BlackBerry phone. It is true.
1: I am not unique, by the way. There are about 2 million of us still. Um, And uh, some of them are, you know, people in politics that you know and love. Um, I do still have a BlackBerry. I love the keyboard. I can't give up the keyboard. I, I do almost entirely email and texting and, you know, writing blog posts and writing articles on my phone. And so it's essentially just another computer. And I just need, I need that BlackBerry keyboard. So I, my, from my cold dead hands. That's
2: unbelievable. All right. Well, so we want to talk about, um, I guess a bunch of different ways in which climate is getting infused into the world of finance, but maybe let's start at the high level. Um, so Larry Fink writes a letter, uh, it shakes the world of finance. He talks about how climate change is the most important thing in the world, uh, and, you know, sends it out into the universe. Like, what is your sense of what impact that actually has. Like there's a lot of articles and thought pieces written about it when, when Larry Fink sends that letter, do you you get the sense that that results in any tangible immediate or not immediate impact?
1: Yeah, I think it's important because uh, it takes the issue. I mean, you know, for a while, the issue of climate finance and sort of integration of climate risk into decision-making you know, a bunch of people were talking about it. This has been on the agenda for the last, you know, five, seven years with the task force on climate-related financial disclosures through the G20. Um, I helped run this thing called the Risky Business Project, which fo- focused on this. Um, but it still was kind of the domain of like the sustainability people at the firm, um, you know, who were like dealing with the niche clients that wanted some kind of a sustainable fund or the people doing ESG or environment social governance investing at firms. I think the Larry Fink letters and the first one was two years ago and then he's done two more actually. Um, I think what's important about those is it's sort of like, I mean, the world's largest asset manager actually operationalizing that saying climate risk is investment risk and then turning around and like figuring out how to evaluate all of BlackRock's assets from a climate risk perspective. That's a big deal because it's, um, you know, it actually affects all of those assets. It affects all those owners. CEOs really listen to that. Um, so I think it it was enormously important.
2: You sort of alluded to why I wanted to have this conversation, because there's um, there's an interesting sort of step you have to take between, okay, now climate finance, climate risk is investment risk and climate should be a part of every investment decision to then like what actually happens as a result. Right. And so, and and I think the result, at least what I've seen is that uh, a bunch of different things happen all at the same time. And so I want to kind of talk through them one by one. So the first one is uh, carbon accounting, carbon disclosure, like the types of things that companies need to do because in part their investors are demanding that they do it. Right. And so what is your sense of where that universe of carbon accounting, carbon reporting lies today?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna take a step back first because I do think it's really important. I think people, especially climate people tend to go right to uh, carbon accounting, which makes total sense because it's like, we're used to counting emissions. That's what we've been doing for years. That's what policy has been focused on. I think it's important to remember that like the Larry Fink letter and the BlackRock approach as well as the task force on climate related financial disclosures or TCFD, they actually look at two different kinds of risk. So they look at both physical risk, which is their risk to assets of climate impacts. So, like you know, this is a lot of what Larry Fink is talking about, and actually what BlackRock has done has been evaluation of place-based assets, like manufacturing firms, like energy systems, um, and the impact of like floods and extreme heat and and fires on those things. So physical risk is one piece. What you're talking about is really kind of covered under what's called transition risk. So it's like what is the risk of this thing becoming a stranded asset as we shift to policy and programs that make, and litigation that makes it, you know, harder to do high carbon stuff. Um, most of the carbon accounting work, which is really kind of counting emissions, kind of falls in the transition risk bucket. Cause it's like, how high carbon is your thing? Is your thing gonna continue to be able to exist um, given that it's so high carbon? Are there, all, you know, are there lower carbon alternatives? Are there, um, you know, what do you? What's your forecast on policies and politics, and where it's going to take this thing? So I think that's really important. I think it fits well into a bunch of stuff people were already doing um, in terms of like CDP, uh, for instance. It used to be the Carbon Disclosure Project. Um, already had a whole bunch of people voluntarily counting their carbon, and so it's like the next step. It sort of says, okay don't just count it but actually disclose and this is what i think is important disclose what you see coming on the horizon and how you're going to
2: deal with it right i think that's been that's been probably the biggest change on the transition risk side to me which is like it's one thing to say in an annual report to cdp or whoever you know, we estimate that our scope one, two, and three emissions are X, Y, and Z. And that's another thing to do what there's a lot of pressure for companies to do now, which is set a science-based target or set a target to reach net zero by some year, and then uh, have your feet held to the fire in terms of how are you actually, like, are you laying out a plan that is credible to head in that direction?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's really interesting because um, it requires a lot of Uh, kind of projection of things that are ultimately very political. Um, So, I mean, the science isn't, right? The science-based target thing is great because it's like, what does the science tell you and where do you have to get given the science? But transition risk disclosure also is supposed to take into account litigation risk and political risk. And those things are really tricky. I mean, you know, if you think about political risk, for instance, like, you know, the US, I don't think, I don't think 10 years ago, anybody would have projected that the US would leave the Paris Agreement for four years. That happened, it changed a bunch of trajectories of carbon emissions in the United States. Um, you, you sort of are asking people to project that. So the science-based targets are good because they get you out of that realm of like trying to game out the politics and into the realm of what is the science that you have to do. The theory there is that policy and politics are gonna follow the science. Um, I really hope that's true. I mean, I think that's that's tough, but... Um, But I think that's it's a good way to go. I'm always fascinated, I have to say, and we can keep talking about transition risk, but I'm always fascinated that physical risk isn't the first thing everybody does, because honestly, Hmm. it's so much more predictable. um, That's interesting that you say that. related to the science, right? I mean, we actually have the projections for most of these things, particularly extreme heat, but also water availability, sea level rise, um, you know, to some extent, inland flooding. I mean, we actually know a lot of it uh, out pretty far.
2: That's, I was going to ask you about that because there was, you, you may have seen this already. There's an article, uh, like an academic paper that came out in the journal Nature Energy this week that was basically making the case that we shouldn't rely too much on this physical risk analysis that we're doing right now because theres it's still inherently uncertain. Our climate models are getting better, but they're not that good yet. and So the ability for a specific physical asset to predict its specific risk from a flood, a once in a hundred year flood that becomes a once in a 10 year flood kind of a situation. W- you know, we can't over rely on that at this point.
1: Yeah, I I think it's pretty predictable for the next several decades, which is essentially the lifespan of most infrastructure before you do a major repair. So four to five decades. Unfortunately the emissions we've already put into the atmosphere have set in stone a fair amount of those impacts for the next several decades. It gets less and less certain the farther out you go. There's no question because we don't, it ties directly to transition risk. If we don't bend the curve on emissions, then the physical risk gets much more severe. If we do bend the curve on emissions, then the physical risk starts changing. And there's also been some really interesting new articles um, which are encouraging showing that if we can actually get emissions down, we can actually bend the curve on the impacts of extreme heat in particular, that we might actually see heat um, impacts reversing, which is fantastic. Much harder with sea level rise, let me just say, but but heat impacts potentially. So I think it's pretty predictable. Everything I've seen pretty predictable out for the next few decades, for most of the time frames that asset owners and managers are working with, it's pretty predictable. You know, I've spent a lot of time with um, Spencer Glendon, who was for years and years at Wellington management and is now doing risk analysis for a living, you know, always says or reminds us that these same people that are saying that physical risk is too hard to project have for years been projecting and planning, you know, investments around terrorism risk, for instance. and terrorism risk is extraordinarily hard to project. It's based on political systems. It's based on response to those political systems. It's actually to some extent based on climate, but, um, but that this is just far more predictable. And so we should be absolutely incorporating it into decision-making.
0: We're going to pause the show for a minute to talk about the Yale Program on Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. This is a new online program in 2021 from Yale University. Yale is educating with impact, training working professionals like you to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. It's estimated that approximately $1 trillion per year is going to need to be dedicated to deploying and financing clean energy if we want to stay below 2 degrees Celsius temperature increase. That's a lot of challenges ahead, but a lot of opportunities as well. Tackling them requires a cross-sectoral approach and an interdisciplinary lens, understanding what's happening across the spectrum. It also requires an informed workforce and powerful knowledge networks. That's why Yale University drew on its deep expertise to offer a unique program marrying academic rigor with practical skills for working pros in all parts of clean energy. The program builds a common language across disciplines to better understand the interplay of policy, finance, technology, and socioeconomic factors that support the growth of this sector. To connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact. Visit the link in the show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. Don't pass up this opportunity.
2: One of the downstream effects of Larry Fink and BlackRock and all these other asset managers and institutional investors and activist investors and so on training their collective eye increasingly toward climate is kind of a, a host of things that corporates in particular have to start doing if they're not doing already, which is you know, basic carbon accounting, if they weren't already doing that, here's how much I emit scope one, scope two, scope three, Um, then climate risk reporting, both transition risk, as you as you described before, which is basically like, what's going to happen to my business if uh, I don't stop emitting this stuff, or at least I don't reduce my emissions related to that one, some kind of a net zero target or a science based target, something like that with a credible pathway to get there. Like that's all one bucket, and then there's physical risk as well. What's going to happen to all my assets, and how do I have a uh, how do I have a plan to to reduce that? So that that's all to me. That all falls under like one umbrella, which is like if you're a corporate, as a result of this change, this macro change in the financing environment. You got to do all these things, and you got to figure all them out pretty quickly.
1: I think the the issue you're pointing at, uh, which is a really important one, is kind of boils down to we're asking these guys to do all these things um, on top of each other, and how do we, how do they manage that? How how do we, uh, you know, ensure that that's doable? I think that's a really important question, Um, one of the things we're doing at the state is thinking a lot about carbon, uh, about climate risk disclosure. And what we're really focused on is how do we make sure that we're consistent with federal standards and we're consistent with international standards and best practices, because what we don't wanna do is actually be creating layer upon layer upon layer of disclosure requirements. Um, We've already seen that kind of be a problem, frankly, in in the world of uh, like the the carbon disclosure requirements from 10 years ago is that people were doing like seven different voluntary reporting standards and
2: even even today right and there's there's the the climate reporting stuff TCFD you talked about and CDP but there's also these other ESG standards that have like carbon as a component but there's also the social and governance stuff there's this like explosion and then from what i've heard from corporates as well like you've got Uh, you've got, you know, a multiple standards and frameworks you can report against, but then you also have a bunch of large institutional asset managers who've got their entirely their own set of like questionnaire that they're sending you. That's like, here's my ESG questionnaire for you, but I'm big, I'm Wellington or I'm BlackRock or whoever. So I'm big enough that you need to fill it out. And so they're just overwhelmed with this stuff. And the risk, you know, I don't mean to be like playing a tiny violin for these corporates necessarily, except that I would say that, you know, if you want it to have the intended effect, it's going to be. I would think more successful if there's clarity if there's if it it you know, in the same way that, like financial reporting seems like it is a pretty straightforward streamlined process, everybody does similar financial reporting. Like don't we end up need to end up in a similar place with climate reporting?
1: Yeah, I think we do. Um I think, well, it's like a full employment policy for consultants, so it does have that going for it. But I right. think it um I think we're getting there, actually. I mean, in part because, you know, the Biden administration has put climate risk disclosure and climate reporting as one of its Build Back Better kind of components. And so, you know, the SEC is looking very hard at this. They've already determined that climate risk is a material risk. And now they have to give much better guidance and much more specific guidance about what that means. Everyone is looking for that kind of clarity and that kind of consistency. And other countries, I think, have gone further than we have. This is an area where the US is actually looking at Europe to a large extent. France has had a mandatory disclosure system in place for certain types of companies for a couple of years um and the bank of england is developing really comprehensive disclosure uh you know kind of guidelines that a lot of people are now looking at um and and i do think though that tcfd just to just to distinguish it tcfd is a framework right tcfd is really you know are you recognizing these risks and are you accounting for them and thinking about them and you sort of to me it's like a narrative it's like a you know, uh, an acknowledgement of this as part of planning. And then you get to what does that actually look like when it comes to to the disclosure standards? And that's where everyone's kind of working it out right now. I think this year's gonna be pretty pivotal this because um, you know Mark Carney, former head of the Bank of England, is very focused on disclosure going into the um, UN COP 26 in Glasgow, and it's just a big area of focus all of a sudden for a bunch of governments and a bunch of private sector folks.
2: Yeah, that was another area I wanted to talk to you about because I know you've put a lot of thought into this. We obviously we have a new administration in the U.S. that had, they've they've made it um, known that this is this is going to be an area of focus and you know, Biden is taking this all whole of government approach to to climate. And so you talked about the SEC, which is one place where this could play out. Another one seems like it's Treasury. And I just want to read you a tweet from John Kerry a week or two ago. You might have seen this. He said this is the, I'm quoting John Kerry's tweet. He says at Janet Yellen and I uh, know that this is not a moment. It's a movement. So we're turning climate energy into climate action with climate finance. First of all, like, okay, you don't need to say climate energy into climate action with climate finance, though it is a little bit catchy, but treasury is an interesting player here, right? Where like, I, I mean, you tell me, but my sense is that treasury has had in the US has had like virtually nothing to do with climate historically.
1: I mean, I, you know, just to 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 give props to my former boss, Hank Paulson, when he was at treasury, he actually started the strategic and economic dialogue with the US and China and it had a climate component to it. So he was talking about climate as an economic issue with China. Back then, it was very unusual that that was happening. Um, but you're right, in general, it hasn't really been a treasury issue. It's been you know, an SEC issue to an extent, obviously other agencies have picked it up. Treasury is really important in this space for a couple of reasons. It's obviously gonna be central to the recovery um, from this recession. And so there's gonna be a question of sort of how do we incorporate climate risk into recovery planning? How do we make sure we're not, you know, subsidizing through public, through taxpayer dollars, a whole bunch of infrastructure that's A, gonna be underwater or B, gonna be stranded? Um, You know, going forward, how do we think about, uh, you know, economic development or economic opportunity around some of these emerging industries? How do we think about the U.S. role in relation to other countries, right? Um, The Treasury does a whole bunch of work on lending to other countries, lots of kind of a high level discussion with other countries on, you know some of these fundamental questions in this space, like how do you deal with climate risk in a place with no energy access? When you're building up a system from the ground up, how do you think about this? What are the options? What are the sort of financing mechanisms that can support, you know, a, a combination of renewables with storage, with you know some, you know, demand response, and uh, and what does that look like from a finance perspective? That's a really important role for treasury because it's, it's different than what people are used to doing internationally. Everybody kind of knows how to get a coal plant financed. It's it's a fairly clear path. It's actually not been as clear how to do these deals where you're combining a whole bunch of different um, technologies that are intermittent with demand response with storage. Um, and how do you do that in a country that doesn't have any infrastructure? So I think Treasury's got a, an important role in a, across a couple of places and it's it's super exciting. It also just is a big dog in terms of agencies. It's got a very, very powerful bully pulpit um, and I'm really encouraged by you know, the, the kind of international climate conversations are moving beyond the environment ministers and finance ministers are starting to really have a voice um, in a much bigger way. To be clear, I'd also like climate to be a focus of the major economies forum and the G20 and sort of the non you know, enviro kind of forums, because I think we actually do need to be looking at this as a major macroeconomic force that's affecting every region and every sector and talking about it the way we talk about inflation, the way that we talk about globalization. Um, that's really where we are at this point with climate change, both the impacts and the, you know, the future emissions.
2: Yeah, that feels like the big overarching uh, imperative here, which also I think is, you know, why Larry Fink saying this over and over again has a big impact, which is, it's not, this is not an Enviro issue. It's not, it's not, you know, I want my kids to have a better planet to live on or whatever. Like that's real too, but this is a, uh, this is an economic imperative. And there is, there are equal parts like enormous risk and enormous opportunity. And just like with every other macroeconomic phenomenon out there. And so it should be accounted for. I mean, I think it's
1: yes. And right. I mean, I think for groups of people like when we did the risky business project we had a very very laser specific focus on finance and business people as an audience and that's why we you know chose to do editorials in the wall street journal instead of in the well in the new york times that's why we did a big financial times thing that's why you know it's like that's why hank paulson was one of the messengers um that doesn't mean it's not that the driving force for some other people isn't the moral imperative of of making the world better for their grandchildren. It is like, there's a whole other set of people for whom that's why climate is a moral imperative. There's a whole other set of people for whom it's an imperative because their kids have asthma and they live next to some super polluting high carbon thing. And they're like, this is not the way we can build our future. Um, I think one of the things that I've really come to recognize in doing this work for whatever 20 years now is there isn't a magic, there isn't a magic way to talk about climate change. There isn't like a communication solution that makes everybody get on board with one thing. There are, everyone comes to this issue because of their own, where they start. Um, and everyone comes to it with a different set of solutions uh, to, to the problem that they're facing. And it makes it super challenging, but it also means, frankly, that like you don't have to be an environmental scientist to work on climate change. You don't need to be like a ESG finance person, you actually should be working on it, whoever you are across whatever you're doing, because it's part of everything.
2: Right. This has actually always kind of been an issue for me in my career where like, I don't, (laughs) I'll come out as like, I don't really consider myself an environmentalist all that much. I mean... Look, I I care about that stuff you have too. Plants but behind like,
1: you right now, shale So that seems you know, yeah, to trust me. <laughs> I am I am absolutely
2: not the one who is keeping these plants alive. You should see the plants in my office, where I am solely responsible. It's embarrassing. Um, but no, I mean, like you know, climate change has been uh, a- an issue around which I've oriented basically my entire career. But I've never considered it to be you know I don't it, other environmental issues don't resonate with me in the same manner, um, and it's it's just a different thing.
1: Well, I think that's good in a way. You know, I. I actually come, as you know, from like an economic development background uh, and an organizing background, and I didn't come up through environment either. It's really unusual, actually, I, I whenever I have to tell my sort of story on how I got to, into climate change, it's very circuitous and it's never about sort of, you know, I went on hikes as a child and loved nature and then I did environmental sciences, which is the story for many people. Right. Um, for me, it was very much about like clean energy as an economic driver and what does it look like in, you know for sectors and regions. Um, But I think that's good that more people that are coming through different fields are doing climate change. I actually think it goes to what I just said, which is like, if you're gonna build different narratives and different stories and different things that, that, that really are compelling to different people, you need a variety of perspectives to do that. That not everybody comes to this from an environmental perspective, not everybody in the world is an environmentalist. So how do we, Again, just really incorporated into everything we're talking about um, because it is just huge. I mean, if you think about it, it just yeah. again, if you think about the combination of current impacts and then future, future, you know, emissions.
2: I want to come back to the ways in which climate getting infused into the world of finance um, has real impact, and maybe we can use a tangible example because I think it's easy to it's easy to talk in the clouds about this, but you're you're seeing a version of this sort of play out. Uh, in the state of California, which is Governor Newsom put out an executive order that um, calls for some of the major state asset owning agencies and the state pension funds to align closer with with the state's climate goals. You talk a little bit about that, and I guess specifically, like what is that what do they do then? Like, what's going to change about what they do and don't own and invest in?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. So, that executive order came out last, or actually, no, in 2019 now. It's all the days are blending together. Um, And, you know, I think it was really a recognition that California is this leader on climate, right? I mean, we have these amazing goals and ambitions, right? We've got carbon neutrality by 2045, we have 100% clean by 2045. We've now got, you know, no internal combustion engines sold by 2035, like all these goals. And the Air Resources Board, you know, since 2006 has been implementing those through regulation, through cap and trade, through the low carbon fuel standard, through the renewable portfolio standard. Um, So a lot of kind of mandates and and regulation. But what I think has really come clear to us as a state, and it's partly because of the wildfires actually, um, which have just kind of brought this home, um, what a big deal this is from a financial perspective, it's just become clear that California wasn't really leading on, you know, the state itself as an asset owner and investor. Like if we're leading on climate, we should also be best in class on what it means to invest toward a carbon neutral future and what it means to own assets that will be around in a carbon neutral future. Like what does that look like? So the executive order was a recognition of that and basically did what executive orders did and said, you know, hey agencies figure this out. So We at my office of planning and research working with our two big asset owning agencies. So, the Department of Transportation owns over 300,000 miles of freeways um, and highways in the state. And then the uh, Department of General Services, with 19 million square feet of buildings and 51,000 fleet vehicles. We've sort of sat down with them over the past year and a half and said, you know, what does this look like in operation? How do you incorporate Physical risk and transition risk into your decision making. We had a separate process with the with the pensions because we don't run the pensions. The pensions are a partner, so a separate process to learn what they've been doing, to learn from them, you know, to kind of encourage them to do more. Um, but with the asset owning agencies, you know, it's it's kind of um, prosaic, but it comes down to things like design build standards, right? It comes down to like how do you incorporate, you know, flood modeling into how you what materials you use in a roadway. Um, how do you think about, you know, material like concrete innovation where you're actually looking at carbon sequestering concrete? Do you do a procurement standard around that to drive a market for it? I mean, it's stuff like that. Um, So it's pretty kind of specific, but it's this is where we're all getting. Like one thing I will say about California is, you know, we've had these policies in place longer than almost anybody. Our entire economy already is driving toward low carbon. We are like out there in the front lines of what it means to implement that and what it means to actually do it. Um, And what it means to do it is like a million decisions (laughs) on a daily basis, all of which need to align in that direction. So, you know, some of its procurement standards, some of its design build, some of its, um, you know, really hard questions on, you know, with the transportation uh, sector in particular on... You know, do you widen a freeway at all? Because widening a freeway increases the amount people drive, and increasing driving is a is an emissions issue. So, what are your alternatives? Right? Like, how do we do land use planning to avoid that much driving? I mean, these are big, big long term decisions. So, um, I think it's super interesting that actually our Department of Transportation is about to come out with its public sort of plan on how it's implementing that executive order, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know. Um, what public reaction is to it, because it's a lot of different pieces um, all coming together.
2: There's one other, at least one other category of sort of climate uh, infiltrating finance that we haven't talked about, which is financial instruments that are climate aligned or climate oriented. So like green bonds, sustainability linked bonds. Yeah, I would be interested to get your take on that whole sector of that trend and the degree to which you think that is seriously impactful and like how much can it scale? Just what's going to happen there?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. We're doing some work in California on that. Actually, the treasurer, Fiona Ma, has pulled together this group over the past year and a half or so, um, this green bond committee to talk about green bonds. And it's a public and private kind of group that UC Berkeley convenes. Um, And we've been talking for a while about how do you – how do you make your bonds attractive to the green bond market? And the reason you wanna do that, right? Is because if something's designated as a green bond, then you can get lower bond rates and it's just cheaper to finance. And it, that's really important to us as a state because you know it's a budget issue. Um, it turns out to be complicated because the way we do bonding in the public sector, you know, we don't do it asset by asset, right? Like we do giant projects, like we, we bundle everything together. And unbundling it to figure out how green it is is a little complicated. And so what we found can, is like there's some things that are easier than others.
2: Can you describe what a typical green bond looks like, like a corporate green bond, and then maybe use that as a contrast to to why it's more challenging to do in the public I sector? I don't even know
1: if I can describe a typical green bond. You're probably better able to describe a typical green bond. I'm like so caught up in the, in the public sector world on this. So you, you tell us, Shale, tell us what a typical green bond looks like. I think that I,
2: I, I don't have the right answer to this either. I mean, I think there's a, a few different kinds. Sometimes it will be a, a security, a, a bond that is linked to specific goals. Like I, I know one of the more pioneering ones was, I think it was NL's the Italian utility or one of the big European utilities um, put out a bond wherein the interest rate is fixed as any bond is, um contingent on them hitting some very specific quantifiable carbon reduction targets. If they do not, then the interest rate jumps. So it's like putting the it's putting very um very real financial impact for them on the commitments that they're making. They're able to raise capital really cheap as a result of being able to do that, assuming that they actually hit their target. So I think there's a bunch of different shades of these sustainability linked bonds, but that's an example of what the kind of thing you see.
1: I think on the public sector side, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about resilience bonds because one of the places that everyone's really interested is can't, you know, we, we bond a lot of like natural resource projects. So, you know, and our, uh, a bunch of our kind of wildfire resilience work is bonded, right? Um, you know, regional uh, measure AA in the Bay Area to, to shore up like the to sort of deal with the impacts of sea level rise and shore up coastal infrastructure is a bond. Um, those projects are interesting because it's a different set of metrics because it's like the bond is based on how resilient your system is. And I don't know how you exactly do the metrics on that. I think it's just hard. I mean, I think this is one of the big questions is, is there a universal way to define this? And is there a universal set of metrics when the reality is that this stuff is so local in nature? I mean, one of the complicated things about climate change in general is it's this global problem with super, super local solutions and super local impacts. Um, so I think we're still learning. I'm at least still learning on this, but I think it's exciting to think about, You know, we have to find ways to add more value to these types of projects. They can't just be about government going out there and being, you know, and doing a giant works project you know, WPA type of g- approach and like funding everything. Cause it's just not, we don't have the money particularly at the state level we have a balanced budget requirement under our constitution. Um, and we all, it's just not the way government really works anymore. So how do we think about getting that value through, you know, through green bond designation through resilience bond designation through ESG designation through, you know, whatever. Um, uh, to, into these projects is a great question. So I'm excited to, to learn more about it. I feel like I'm just a, still a novice on
2: the bond question. So let's fast forward a decade, assuming that this all continues to play out as it is now and um, in a positive direction in the sense that like climate does, you know, become more and more infused into all these different parts of the capital markets. Are we talking about climate finance in 10 years or is it just finance? Right, like, is the goal? Is this one of these sectors where, like, the goal is for it to disappear?
1: I mean, I sort of hope so. It's, uh, you know, it's like people used to always say innovative finance, and people in the finance world were always like, "I don't want to think about innovative well, it, finance." It's
2: like alternative sounds, energy, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like alternative, right? Exactly, um, or green jobs, which I always I hate <laughs> right. that phrase now, right? Because um, it's like it's a greener economy. It's not green jobs. I really hope it. It. I really hope it's a a, a, a phrase that goes away. I think you know. We don't talk about, you know, terrorism aligned finance. We don't talk about, you know, inflation aligned finance. Like we're, this is one of those big picture things. So um, I hope so, but you know, the politics are the politics. So it's just uh, uh, the partisanship on this issue remains incredibly strong. So um, I have a lot of hope because my experience at least on the financial side is it's less partisan that these conversations they end up being about bottom line Risks and impacts and costs and people can have that conversation without getting into the politics. But I kind of worry that once it gets to the level of policy, that it you know breaks down again um, uh, into those into that kind of partisan conversation. And it's very very hard to get out of once you're in that partisan conversation. So you know we'll see.
2: So fast forward ten years from now, do you still own a BlackBerry? <laughs>
1: I mean, I keep thinking BlackBerry is going to die and that it keeps coming back. So, you know, it's... it's,
2: I think you're single-handedly keeping it alive.
1: I am very proud to do that. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do, Shale. You know, this is actually an existential issue for me because I don't... I hate touchscreen phones. I mean, mine is, in fact, an Android with a keyboard, so it has a touchscreen. But um, I hate the idea of not having a keyboard so much, but I also like... I don't want to do that weird keyboard extension thing. Like I want a phone with a keyboard and, and I right. don't know what I'm gonna do. So I'm you know, it's very concerning. It keeps me up at night.
2: Yeah, that's like a very serious transition <laughs> risk that you face <laughs> in your life.
1: It is, it is. Well, maybe I'll prevail and like there'll be, you know, I have to say that I have the BlackBerry and back when I used to go places and see people and like talk to people, um, I I was always amazed by the teenagers were obsessed with my phone. Like I would be on the bus or whatever and teenagers would be like, that is the coolest phone I've ever seen. So you never know. <laughs> Cause it's, it's like, possible. it's like
2: vintage. You mean, or like, because I, I have... think
1: it has a keyboard and it's cool looking and it's, yeah, exactly. It's like retro futurist. I don't know. So I, I always got all these compliments. So maybe I'm like at the beginning of something, not the end of
2: something. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably right. Kate Gordon is the Director of the Office of Planning and Research in California Governor Gavin Newsom's office. She's also a senior advisor to the Governor on Climate, uh, and Kate apparently babysat me as one of my my six simultaneous babysitters that it took to keep me in line. Kate, um, so fun to have you on as always.
1: Very fun talking to you, Shale. Thank you.
2: The interchange is produced by PostScript Audio in partnership with Green Tech Media. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Steven Lacey is our executive producer. He's very executive. Tell us what you thought of the conversation. Send us show ideas. Tweet at us at, at interchange show or send us an email at postscript gmail.com. Give us a rating or review on wherever you get your podcast apps. And I'm Shale Khan. And this is The Interchange from Green Tech Media.